How does a corporate district manager turn nightclub manager, turn roadie, turn monsters into money? Stay tuned and find out. Okay, here's the question. How are we dark horses? You know, the ones everyone is betting against, the ones they don't expect to win, place, or even show on the track, and they'll even laugh on us when we talk about trying. How do we show the world our greatness and triumph? Well, that's the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. This is the Dark Horse Entrepreneur. My name is Tracy Brinkman. Push it out. Welcome back to your weekly dose of monstrous learning. I'm your Dark Horse host, Tracy Brinkman, and you, well, infinitely more importantly, you are a driven entrepreneur, a business owner, or hoping to be one very soon. Either way, you're here because you're ready to start, restart, kickstart, or just start leveling up with some great marketing, personal, or business results in order to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. I have a a rocking big episode today. Today, Christina Vitaliano shares her story of leaving corporate America and all the perks that come with it, you know, like the, the business expense account and the company car, through her journey, through uh, the nightclub scene, bartending to managing, then being a roadie and founding her own uh, auction house, and finally creating her current business that she now franchises all over North America. Uh, and this allows others to enjoy their entrepreneurial dream. And then finally, she's going to share how she come to run yet another business for what to me is a rock and roll icon, Gene Simmons, the bassist, the demon, you know, that guy with the tongue from the rock band Kiss. Plus, I'm going to let you in on next episode's guest who served in the British Armed Forces and now combines his martial arts with sales skills. As per usual, the dark horse corrals are chock full of business, personal, and marketing, G-O-L-D, spilling from every corner of the dark horse entrepreneur HQ. So let's get to the starting gates and go. All right, my fellow dark horse ladies and gentlemen, I've got a really cool guest on the show today, Christina Vitaliano. Oh, God, I hope I didn't mess that one up again, right? Uh, welcome to the show, Christina. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? You did perfect, by the way. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It was funny. I was just asking Christina, verifying her, her, her name a, a moment ago, and she was telling me the G was a, uh, what, would you call, what did you call that, a, an alphabetical waste? Yeah, it's an alphabetical waste. <laughs> alphabetical waste. I'm going to have to remember that one for time, uh, times every once in a while. Uh, but really, I want to take a moment and just uh, hand the microphone over to you and let you tell your story, You know, your entrepreneurial journey. I know you started way back at the uh, ripe old age of 16 and have had a pretty yeah. cool journey. So you know, share uh, you know, your story to get from where you were to where you are today and, and why you love doing what you're doing now. Wow, that's a little I'll try to make that concise if I can. That's okay. <laughs> that's a lot. I'm old, so that's a lot of years. <laughs> um, uh, back, I started working in a, um, a camera store when I was in high school. Um, and at the time, you know, I, I don't come from a wealthy family at all. So if you want to, you know, clothes and, and eat and things like that, you got to go out and get a part-time job. Um, and I always liked photography. I'd taken it in high school. So um, there was a, a little store in the mall called Underground Camera, which was eventually bought out by Ritz Camera, which is a bigger chain, um, that I was fortunate enough to get a part-time job. And then, geez, you know, eight years later, <laughs> um, I found myself as a district manager with that company. But 
um, I owe them, the, the owners of, of that company, um, a lot of credit for who I am today as a, as a business person. Back then, and I know things, times have changed over the years, but they sent me to so many seminars and workshops and everything you could possibly do to make yourself a better salesperson, uh, customer service person, just a well-rounded employee. And, uh, you know, you owe them a lot when you think back on who you've become as a person. You know, your teachers and your and your part-time jobs, your full-time jobs kind of make you who you are today in some ways. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was a biggie, um, for me anyway. Um, and then after eight years uh, of, you know, I worked my way up from being just a, a regular part-time kid to um, a district manager for the company where I was traveling, you know, uh, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, uh, Connecticut, and even sometimes up into uh, New Hampshire, you know, traveling, visiting stores. Um, and then when I had been with them for about eight years, that's when Rich Camera came in and, and kind of took over. And I had the opportunity to either stay with them, uh, you know, and, and stay with actually Underground Camera that split off. The owner of Underground Camera, the founder, actually kept two stores and he asked if I wanted to manage one of those. And I just felt that was a time for change. My uncle owned a nightclub way back when, and I was about 25 years old. I had never had a drink. I didn't drink when I was a kid. Um, and uh, barely, God, if I cussed, that was people, I would freak people out. <laughs> so how I decided that I wanted to work at a nightclub was beyond me. But my <laughs> uncle was an entrepreneur, and I, I was like, God, this guy's always doing something cool. So he took me on, and I started bartending of all things. So I went from district manager with a company car, everything. I was completely all set. And I just said, nope, I'm, I'm bored. I'm, I'm just, I've hit a limit here with this company. Um, I don't want to be in middle management for the rest of my life. And uh, so I started all over again. And I started bartending for him. And about uh, three months later, I was managing the club. And uh, within the year, the club was just, it, it grew. Um, and uh we had become like, you know, the biggest sellers and, and Budweiser and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, and, and from there, I went on to a, a bigger club in Providence, Rhode Island. I managed that one. And then um, that's where I met my husband. And that was back in 95. And uh, I, I said that when I meet the right person in my life, that's when I'll stop being a workaholic and, and working in a club business. It's a fun business, but your hours are, are just sure. Um But we did all kinds of you know, cool promotions and things like that. So when I met Patrick, I actually quit my job. Um, I've done some really ridiculous things in my life just <laughs> as far as thinking goes, but I don't, we don't have any children. So I think that, um, that, with that me, yeah, it does. It does because there's a responsibility. So you can say if you're an adult and you have children, Hey, I'd like to do this. I want to quit my job. I want to start all over again. But, but Unfortunately, I think, you know, sometimes you can't. You're stuck. You have to make sure that there's a security net where you can feed your children. But not having any kids, um, my thought is as long as I can survive, I can pay my rent, I can pay for Usually I had a car payment back then, still do actually. Um, <laughs> as long as I can do those things, then then I'm okay. And that's how I kind of, you know, base my life as to, you know, getting more knowledgeable and growing. So, when, uh, when I left the club business, Patrick owned a um, an concert production company. That was his business. He had like a small company in Connecticut. And uh, I actually went to work with him, like loading gear. 
I went from being like, you know, the manager of a nightclub and stuff like that. And I used to hire all the acts and deal with all that stuff uh, to, to, you know, working with Pat loading gear. And we did that for a while. And it was fun because it's, it's weird. I, I like to actually work, but um, physical, I'm sorry, I have a bird in the background. That's okay. Uh, physical work is enjoyable because you just, at the end of the day, you feel like you've worked out too. So it was kind of nice. Um, but I will say that after doing that for, I don't know, about a year or so, um, I was like, okay, well, this is boring now. I know how to do this. I know how to fold cables. I know how to, you know, <laughs> I know how to move gear. I'm in good shape, but it's not getting me anywhere. Um, and that was probably right around the time uh, eBay came out. Mm-hmm. And there was just, you know, and back then, we obviously everything was dial-up service and all this other kind of craziness. But I found eBay by accident one day. And I thought, well, this is really weird. Um, they're selling things for a lot of money. And I've always been a vintage uh, and character toy collector. So even when I was a kid, I used to go to flea markets and things like that. So I had acquired a pretty cool collection that was really just in boxes because Pat and I, I mean, we just lived in a small apartment. Um, so I looked at it and I said, you know what? I think I can probably sell some of my toys and make some money. So I started selling on eBay really when it was very, very like brand new. And I started selling on eBay. And then I started to see pricing just you know, started going up and I was like, all right. So now on a Saturday morning, I would go out to all the yard sales and I'd find stuff and I'd sell it. So I had my own little business going on eBay back then. And then I started going to auction houses and buying things and and doing well. And then what happened was eBay started to become more popular. So things that I was buying at auctions for like, you know, I don't know, four or $5 were all of a sudden 20 30 dollars i'm like i can't make money anymore this is crazy yeah. because everybody's becoming an ebay salesperson so i get up one morning i said to my husband i'm gonna own an auction house i want to buy an auction house or create an auction house because that's the person that's making the money now it's not the people like me anymore because this guy is selling all kinds of stuff you know <laughs> so he's like how are you gonna do that i'm like i don't know i have no idea um so i got online i'm like how to be an auctioneer um, so I, you know, I went online, I researched that I, I bought like at the time, um, you know, probably either VHS tapes or, or CDs on how to become an auctioneer, uh, which is easier said than done by the way. But, um, but, so, uh, one thing led to another and I opened an auction house and this is in Northeast Connecticut in a small town and my first auction and I'll never forget it. And oh, I have friends now that I've had for years from the auction business. Um, you know, I started to sell things, um, if you are an auctioneer and you have your own auction house, it looks really cool. But in order to get things to sell, you're usually going to people's houses where they've passed away and you're mm-hmm. taking everything on consignment and cleaning it out. Um, and that's fine. And it's, it's actually a really cool business. If you like history and you get to research items, the only problem is if you're a brand new auctioneer, no, you don't have a reputation. So it's hard to get good items to auction off. So, you know, my first auction, I, I have big people, you know, come on, I think it's going to be a really cool idea. I'm going to do well here. I mean, who's going to give you their stuff and hope they sell it for decent money when nobody knows who you are, you know? Right. So the first auction was pretty much like selling rocks, you know? <laughs> so it felt like, I'm like, it's terrible. But you have to start somewhere. And I remember standing up there, and you have to learn to be an actual auctioneer. So I remember standing up there, like selling whatever, I don't remember what I was selling, a basket or something like that. All right, my fellow Dark Horse entrepreneurs, right here during the interview, we had some technical difficulties, which I've edited out the dead space, and you'll hear as we got back together and continue the discussion. Hello? There, there you are. Can I? Can you hear me now? Yeah, you can hear me. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, what happened? I don't know. It was like you were, I was like into your story and taking notes here, and all of a sudden it just went blank. Yeah, and I saw you. I can see it online. I was like, I don't know what happened. Yeah, I'm not um, here. I don't know where we left off there, so I apologize. I got you uh, first auction, and you were talking about a uh, brand new auctioneer, no reputation yet, and it was like selling rocks, and then that's when it went down. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So we did our first auction, um, you know, and it was it was interesting because I was – it's very uh, nerve-wracking if you've never done it before. That's one thing you have to learn that. But I remember selling – I don't know if I'm repeating this or not. I remember selling like a basket and I had – I'm like, hey, I have $10. Anybody want to give me eight? And so I was going backwards and I was like, this is, this is rough. But, you know, after a while you get the swing of it. We, were, we had a fun um, – we had a fun audience. They were all laughing with us and we ended up – gaining a really quirky and unique relationship and we became the place to send weird things to be auctioned off so there was always something fun to market and I think that helped us a lot but um one day you know we were I was up at the auction I was auctioning off whatever and then uh, at the end of the auction a guy walked up to me and he said hey I'm from Ireland and, and I think I'd want to partner with you and I was like what do you mean he's like well I want to bring things in two or three times a year from Europe and I want you to sell them for me. I want this to be the auction house that does it. I was like, oh, okay, well, that might be cool. So we made a deal with him, and Patrick and I would then travel out to Europe probably two or three times a year. We'd buy all kinds of stuff together with this guy. We'd put it in containers, and then we'd ship it back to the U.S. to be auctioned off. So in between consignment auctions, which are, you know, people will call you and say, hey, somebody's passed away or I want to auction off a bunch of my stuff. Then we would filter in these really unique and unusual auctions too. Mm, that's cool. So then 9-11 happened. Ouch. Um, and, and that got a little weird. So we stopped traveling to Europe, um, which was fine. I mean, because the auction house started to become kind of like well known for being weird and unusual. And then one day I got a phone call from eBay. This is way, I don't even remember what year it was. But, um, and I was like, uh, hi, how are you? And they said, well, we've heard about your auction house, and we think that we want to do live auctions from auction houses. And we'd like to use you as our guinea pig and test you for the first auction. And really, we were in a really tiny town, middle of nowhere. And uh, I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> so a staff from eBay, which was out of the UK back then, I don't know why, um, came down to our town. They set us up, and we actually had the first uh, live eBay auction that went like it was almost, it was streaming basically way back then, uh, and it was interesting. And it was delays; it was all kinds of weird stuff because obviously it was a long time ago. Sure, but it was um, I thought it was an interesting experience. Uh, after after nine eleven and things like changed a lot, and we've been I think I had maybe three or four, maybe almost five years into the auction house. I love the items. Absolutely love research items. We have sold so many weird things. One, I think at one point we were upstairs in this guy's house. We had been auctioning off items from his house for over a year. He was like, a, he was really truly a pack rat, like you see on the reality shows. But okay. he had the weirdest and coolest things ever. Um, so he said one day, he's like, "Hey, Christine, I want you to come upstairs to the attic. We want to work on some stuff up there." So we're like, "All right." So Patrick and I, we climb up the stairs to his little attic. It was about 9 million degrees in Worcester, Mass. It was so hot that day. Right? <laughs> and we get up there, and he's like, I want you to auction off this. And we look down, and he was a professor at Harvard, this guy. And he was really, really eccentric. Um, I was like, okay. And I'm like, geez, Ed, that looks like a coffin. He goes, it is, it is. I'm like, 
Pat, Pat goes, is this your ex-wife up here? And he's like, no, no, no. But we open it up, and there was a fully articulated skeleton in there from like the mid-1800s that they used for teaching way back when. But every bone was put together with like copper wires. It was insane, but it was in a coffin. I'm like, this is just weird. But uh, So we auctioned that off. It was, it was interesting. But after a while, um, as much as I loved the items, it was a lot of work. You have to, you know, take items out of people's houses, mm -hmm. um, obviously clean them, research them, photograph them, market to the right people. And then in one night, you sell all of that stuff. You sell 350 items and you start from scratch again. And I was doing this every two weeks. Oh, the downside wow. of, yeah, it was insane. It was complete insanity. Um, so you have a lot of inventory, a lot of help, a lot of over, it's just craziness. Um, I was taking all the pictures myself. I did my own website way back then. It's nothing was as easy as it is now. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Um, but the downside was that 90% of the time you were standing <coughs> with somebody who's dealing with somebody who had just passed away, which is sad to begin with. The other side of it is, I don't know what it is about human beings, but they go from being sad and missing the person to, I want all of their stuff and I want 10 times more money than it's ever going to be worth and I want all of it to be mine and don't give any of it to my brother and blah, blah, blah. I've been in fights where people threw things. It's just, And at the same time, the Antiques Roadshow was like at its peak back then and people were just insane. Mm -hmm. And I was surrounded by greed and just, I don't know, angry, angriness. So Pat and I, took a break for a weekend and uh, we went away and I was just sitting, we're, I think we were sitting like by a beach somewhere. And I said to him, I don't think I want to do this anymore. He's like, what do you mean? I said, I just don't want to do it. I'm not happy. I don't like it anymore. He's like, well, what the heck are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, well, you can't sell your auction house. There's nothing to sell you. You sell every, you sell out every, every two weeks. Right. I'm like, I know, I know. So I said, well, the only thing I have is a mailing list. So I sold that for not a lot of money. Obviously, it wasn't worth all that much. Um, but I did. I just didn't go back to doing it. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. All I know is that I want to do the exact opposite of what I'm doing now. I want to do something that makes people happy. I want to do something that doesn't have a lot of inventory. And I want to do something that doesn't take a lot of employees. So I said, those are my only criteria. We'll see what happens. So... We came back from our, our little trip, um, and then Pat had to go to New York City for something for his business. And on the way back, I said to him, I think I have an idea. And he's like, oh, dear God. <laughs> he's used to this by now. He's like, what are you going to do? I said, I want to do mini golf indoors. And we're in New England. He goes, why would anyone want to do mini golf indoors? I said, well, I want to do it inside because outside you can only work three months a year because right. you only get summer out there a few months a year. And he was like, all right, but sounds boring. I'm like, I know, I know. He's like, well, what do you want to do? I said, I know that um, when I looked up profitable, small, independent businesses to own, and I, I and that to be, I, I give you an idea of how old I am and how long this will go. Those, I had an Alta Vista it. <laughs> there was no oh Google back then. <laughs> yeah. So that came up as one of the most profitable businesses for a, you know, a small business. I was like, oh, that's weird. So... Um, the more I thought about it, by the time we got home from New York, I said, okay, well, we're going to do it indoors. Um, we're going to make it all black lights, make it glow in the dark, because I learned from the nightclub business that you can take a really crappy venue, which is our, our auction house was an old mill, very run down mill, 
but I had the same space. Pat used to store his equipment in the back of our space. Mm -hmm. So we had that space still. So I said, let's take the auction house. We'll paint it black. We'll make it black lights. And then we'll, I'll create props in, you know, fluorescent paint. That way they only see what we want them to see. We don't have to do a lot of work. We didn't have a lot of money. He was like, uh, all right. He goes, well, how are you going to make props? I'm like, I don't know. I said, well, if I make monsters, monsters are what come out of your head. So, you know, but let's try that. So I spent the next three months making monsters with my hands out of literally everything I could find. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I made the first monster mini golf course um, myself, Patrick helping. I had friends helping. People would come in and out wondering what the heck we were doing. And then uh, – and then we added music because, well, again, it's a lot of this is from what I used to do for a living. And I said, well, if we add music, it's fun. It's entertaining. Um, so we did that. And we opened an indoor mini golf course on Memorial Day weekend of 2004, um, which is the number one weekend for people to go outside after they've been cooped up for months and months. <laughs> uh, and people were like, and as I'm building this, my friends, uh, business associates are like, yeah, good luck with that. Uh, nobody thought it was a good idea. Even our landlord of our building, who was kind of a nutty guy anyway, came up to me the day before we opened and said, all right, so you're opening tomorrow. I'm like, uh-huh. He goes, oh, you probably get like eight people or so, so good luck. And I'll never forget that. I'm like, eight people? And I'm thinking, you're my landlord. You should at least be encouraging me. You need rent, you know? <laughs> right. But he was a weird guy. Um, but while we were building and everything, because my background, I, mean, I have a, I, a lot of marketing experience now throughout the years, um, I was running weird little ads everywhere, all those small papers, um, things like that. And I, I think it was, uh, oh, I can to remember the exact wording, but I think it was, now you can play mini golf indoors in the dark, surrounded by monsters. You're now listening to the Dark Horse Entrepreneur Podcast. Coming, whatever date it was, you know. And it was May 27th, actually, we opened and, uh, and that was it. I'd been running that for months because I figured when you build something, whenever, whether you build a house or you build a business for the first time, you think it's going to go as planned, which is complete crap <laughs> because nothing goes as planned. So in my head, if I had said, hey, I can build this in two months, it really took like six months, you know? Sure. So I had been advertising this for a lot longer than in my head. I had, you know, I had wanted to pre-advertise. But by the time we had opened, People knew that this was coming. So, and when I started building, the only requirements that I had to a small town with not a lot of money, there is old mill town. So I said, I want to make something that's fun for everybody to do, families to do. I want it to have little to no inventory. I want it to have very hardly, hardly any employees. And I want it to cost less than the movies. Because what I had heard from just friends and, and people who had kids was they can't even afford to go to the movies these days, which is sad. Um, so our mini golf, even to this day, monster mini golf to play around is still less than the movies and out. And I have to fight with my franchisees to keep it that way, but we do. So, um, that's how the first monster mini golf was born. That's a lot of, that was a lot of words. Sorry. <laughs> no, that was, that was awesome. Now yeah. you have grown that in, if my research is right, where you're where in 12 States, two countries, Oh geez, I know you're, I a know bit of, you're, you're a little bit of everywhere right now. Yeah, we are um, probably, if you say 12 states, I'm going to go, yep, we are. We have about 31 or so locations, uh, two locations in Canada, and then the two locations here in Las Vegas. Um, so after our, by the end of our first summer, 
and we had opened that first Monster Mini Golf. Um, I remember being, uh, it was me and a friend that we were working behind the counter, and it was a Sunday in August, and it was raining. Now, when it rains in New England, everything gets canceled outside, and people come inside, and it was mobbed, like crazy, crazy mobbed in our place. And Pat called in the middle of the day, and he was out on a sound gig. He had a concert on Block Island, and he had left at like 4 in the morning, and it didn't get canceled. So he's been working in the rain since 4 a.m., and he probably wouldn't get home until um, – Oh, I'm sorry, it's my bird. I apologize. He probably <laughs> wouldn't get home until um, like one or two in the morning, the next morning. And uh, and he had been working outside in the rain all day doing physical labor. So he calls he calls in the middle of the day and he says, hey, how's it going? And me and my friend were just slammed. The place was like you couldn't even move in there, which is probably way over capacity. And you know how when uh, kids play the, the game machines, they get tickets you know, to trade in for prizes and things yeah. like that? Uh-huh. We had the, we had we had games and they all the kids were playing them. But in most locations, um, and we were, we just at the time didn't have a ton of money and didn't plan correctly, honestly, because we didn't have the experience. The kids would come up and they put their tickets into a machine. The machine would count the tickets and then boom, they get a little receipt. Well, that machine that counts tickets, and this is to this day, it's about eight to ten thousand dollars to buy that ticket counting machine. Well, we didn't have one of those, so we actually took a like a ruler. And put it on the counter and made a mark and then say, okay, one, one yardstick is this many tickets. So we would just keep counting like that. Okay. We're counting by hand, basically. So by the middle of a Sunday afternoon, me and my friend were behind the counter, surrounded, like up to our waist, in tickets. Oh, um, my gosh. So we're like, and, Pat, and Pat's like, how's it going? I'm like, holy cow, I can't talk to you. We're so busy. He goes, what do you mean busy? Like, how busy is mini golf? So he goes, he goes, take a reading in the register. I'm like, all right. So I run over to there and I look at it. We had like $3,000, which honestly is a lot of money for mini golf in the middle of nowhere, right? Sure. So he's like, how much money did you make today? I'm like, oh my God, we've made $3,000. And he goes, I am in the wrong business. Right? <laughs> so, so at the end of like that month, we had, this is, we were like, oh my God, this is a real business. We, we need to get our heads together. Um, and Back then, when I, when I started all of this, mixed in with everything else, I had been writing a, a book, um, a true story book about something I've wanted to write about for a long time. And when I got, I finished writing, it took me almost a year to write it. It was my spare time. And when I got done, I learned, well, everything, every time you do something, you're like, oh, dear, this is a much bigger project than I thought. So I had learned that it cost about $5,000 to edit a book. When I came up with Monster Mini Golf, in my head, I thought, well, I can do this business. It's a fun business. You know, it'll be a fun thing to do on the side. Um, and if I can take, you know, a couple hundred dollars a week and put it towards the editing of the book, that'd be great. And if I raise five, when I raise $5,000, I can go get my book published. And needless to say, none, none of that ever happened. But um, so anyway, um, we get to the end of the summer and we're like, oh my God, this is crazy. And all you heard in our, like, in, on the golf course from adults, and, and honestly, as I say, businessmen would come up and say, is this yours? Did you, did you come up with this? Yeah, 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 I did. And then you'd hear them talking to each other going, holy cow, this place is a gold mine. And then you get scared because these people are all wealthier than, than yep. we ever were. Yep. And you were afraid somebody was going to steal our idea. So then I started... We started to say, well, let's go get another location. And I, we can't build another location. We haven't gotten this one down really pat yet. And and one of the cool things about Monster Mini Golf is that 
when you go into a family entertainment center, there's adults behind the counter, like us. We, the owners are behind the counter, and that's that's a huge asset, and people don't realize that. Mm-hmm. So then I thought, well, why don't we franchise it? And the only thing I knew about franchising was that McDonald's did it and Dunkin' Donuts did it. That was the extent of my franchise knowledge. <laughs> so I go back online, and I go on AltaVista, and I go, how do I franchise my business? And then I learned, you know, here's how what you have to do. The legalities behind it is insane. Um, so we learned how to franchise our business, and we got flown out to Chicago one day by this company. And and they look at you and say, okay, are you franchisable? And you have to go through all this learning. It's it's insanity. And we get to the end of the day where we tour the building. We we, we meet marketing people. We meet finance people. We meet legal people. It was crazy. And by the time we get done with our day, we end up on the top floor of this crazy building. And the founder of the company comes in and he says, all right, you've met everybody in my company now. He said, now it's time to to franchise your business. And we're like, okay, well, that sounds great. He said, all right, all we need is $130,000. That's what it's going to take to franchise your business because you have to go through legal fees. You've got to make sure you're franchised. All all the other things. We were like, oh, my God, we don't have (laughs) $130,000. And this little man... He left and he came back into the room and he had our website. Um, oh, I'm sorry, all printed out in front of him. Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't care what you guys do. He goes, but you're not going to leave here today until you franchise this business. He says, we, we franchise about 100 businesses a year. We interview about three to 400 businesses a year, he said. And the majority of them are either service industry or restaurants because that's what franchising normally is. Sure. He said, you don't have either of those and you've taken a proven concept, mini golf's been around for almost 100 years, and you just gave it a new twist. He said, it's just, I think it's franchisable. We're like, well, good for you, but we don't have the 130 grand. <laughs> and he said, what if I, you know, this is like so, that was so much money. It was way beyond anything I can comprehend. And uh, he said, what if I loan it to you? And me and Pat were sitting there going, what? Are you crazy? And he said, no, I, I think that I, I think that this is so good that I'm willing to put my money up front. And we were like, uh, he said, what can you afford to pay me per month for the next nine or ten months? He says, because that's how long the legalities take to get you to where you're legal to franchise. So we were like, uh, I don't know. So he says, come up with a number so that you can afford it and eat and blah, blah, blah. So he gave him a number. He said, okay. He said, pay me that every month. He said, and when we, you do become legal to franchise, he said, your franchise fee is going to be $30,000. That's what they, that's what the average franchise fee actually to this day still is. He said, when you get your franchise fee of 30 grand, he said, you're going to give me 10 grand. You're going to keep the 20 and pay down your debt. Continue to do that. We were like, okay. It was at 28.9% interest. So, <laughs> <laughs> so on the way home, we're both sitting there going, okay. We said yes. We signed papers, right? And on the way home, we're flying home. We're like, hmm, what did we just do with our lives? Yeah. <laughs> so Pat, it was insane. We're like, oh, my God. It was scary. We, again, we don't have any kids, but still, that's a scary thing. Um, so by the time we got home, Pat decided that he would sell his sound equipment and sound company, which he did. We sold everything that we could think of that was in our apartment, and we moved into our golf course. We literally lived in that old mill in our office for the next nine months. And we everything we made, we sent to that guy. By the time we became legal to franchise, we sold our first franchise on the second day. 
and we gave him the last $10,000 we owed him. We paid nice. off by that time. We just paid it down. It was terrifying to us. Um, and I, honestly, without that guy, we would not, we certainly wouldn't be here today, but um, everything is franchised in our company now with the exception of the two Vegas locations, which Patrick and I own sep- in a separate company. Mm-hmm. And then we've got a uh, few um, company owned locations we use for training stores, but, but we, we are mainly franchise operated. Nice. And now I've learned you, a lot about franchising. <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to say, I bet you have being the, uh, the, the person that people are franchising from. Yeah. And, yeah. Being the founder of a company and having franchisees is like having perpetual teenagers for the rest of your life. And that's a good, and that's good and bad. Um, I, we're very fortunate, but I think it's longevity that has made us this fortunate. <laughs> um, the first seven years were, pure hell <laughs> yeah. well, that, that, clearly you paid your dues coming up right you got your comeuppance and now you're uh yep. you're, you're enjoying life uh, a little bit uh a little easier now right yeah i, I know yes, uh, much easier I, I, I i've been lucky enough to enjoy uh, i know at least one of your locations i know your location used to be down the road um wasn't it across the street from the what used to be the uh, hard rock hotel yeah, yeah, and we moved the Kiss location. Um, yeah, no, we've got two co-branded locations. Kiss, obviously, Rock Group Kiss, um, which you're well aware of, um, yes. is now in the Rio Hotel and Casino, and then the Twilight Zone, uh, which is licensed through CBS, is at Bally's. Um, both are, were Caesar's properties at the time. Caesar's has sold their company several times since then, but we we deal with Caesar's directly. Nice, I know. And uh, for anyone that's going going to be in Vegas, you got to check these places out. Uh, I know when we went there, when it was in its original location, um, and then we went down to uh, the Rio location for and and, and you didn't uh, crack into this a little bit. But one of the cool things about at least uh, the locations I've been at, they're they're not just the miniature golf. They also have the arcade, uh, some concessions. Mm-hmm. In the case of the uh, the Kiss one in the in the Rio, you also have obviously you're killing you're you're selling all kinds of merch there, and then you have an event space, <laughs> and in the Kiss one you also have all this great memorabilia um, there as well. So I mean, even if you're not going to go to golf, you could be going there just to look at things, buy some merch. Uh, golfing was a blast. Of course, they were playing lots of great music. Uh, my wife and I got married at your location in Las Vegas and had a blast. I mean, your, your staff took care of us from soup to nuts from well before the event happened through the event and until it was all over with, I mean, it was just top notch service. And this is, I think this is one of the things that's behind the scenes making this motor run so well for you. Oh, I agree. Our staff is amazing. Um, and that is the secret to our entire concept is hospitality and good training. And our people, God, God bless them. They are fantastic. We have wedding chapels in, in both of our Vegas venues. We have the rock and roll chapel at the Rio with, with the Kiss venue. And we have a sci-fi chapel at Bally's. So they're, they're, our wedding chapels are a blast. I love them. <laughs> they're awesome. They're, they're, they're awesome. People got to check these out. So uh, through, through everything that uh, you, you've been through in your entrepreneurial journey, what would you say your biggest struggle was? And there's a number of them. You, you've told us in your story. But what was the one you was like, okay, I would never get over that one. 
I, I honestly, that be, becoming a successful franchise or because you can have a great concept and it can be successful, but that hurdle of becoming a successful and respected franchise or is not an easy task by any means. And there isn't anybody out there that has that experience until you do it. Mm-hmm. So you can't you can go to school and, and you know try to learn about it, but that's that's not going to help you much. Um, once you're in it, you're dealing with personalities, and how do you get all of these personalities to do what you taught them is a, is a proven you know way to do things, and at the same time, give them enough kind of freedom to teach us about things we don't know about. So, uh, Oh, it's as they're easy. learning things in, in their execution mm-hmm. of the business, right? Yeah. Yep. There's I, people, you know, will say there's a lot, unfortunately due to, to COVID, there are so many businesses that aren't coming back to the, from that for so many reasons. And it's very, very unfortunate. I think, if we were in our first, you know, three to five years of franchising, we wouldn't have survived this. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. we're not. We're in we're in year sixteen, seventeen, um, and without these people working together as a team, which has been so impressive. We we do so many Zoom calls and this and that. I I, I keep thanking them, going, "Holy cow, you guys are amazing!" When we when we say we've got to work together and do this, they get it done. But it's because we're all experienced, and the mm-hmm. new people are okay because they know the, the people with them are experienced. So, right. man, there's, talk about power in numbers. It's, it has been completely proven there. I, I, I'm just so grateful for that. No doubt. So key, key gem for everyone listening is back yourself up with an awesome team and, and then train those that, <laughs> you're, that you're bringing in the door, right? I've, I've been capturing all yeah. kinds of gems here. So my goodness. Yeah your wealth of knowledge from, from the ground up from 16 to, to current, and we won't name numbers at this point because uh, I think you and I, are in, you and I are in the same decade brackets. What, yep. what, what top tip from your experience would you want to share with uh, the entrepreneurs listening? Be humble. Ooh. Work hard. Mm-hmm. Everyone's That's how looking we get for, successful. Everyone's looking for that quick buck nowadays, it seems like, right? Yep. <laughs> Yep, and if you do that, you you'll find that you have not a lot of competition around you. Yeah, yeah, that no, that's and you know, and, and we touched a little bit, you know, about this. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why I work with Gene so well, and as a big ego as he appears to have, um, behind the scenes he does not, um, you know, and he's his worth ethics are top notch there, and mm-hmm. and we are. As a team, I, I like working with him. He's no nonsense. You know, you make a mistake, you get past it, you fix it, and you keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. We don't dwell on stuff like that. So it's, uh, I don't know. Yeah, just I know, keep I, your I, head forward, I, I, stay I, I, out from, of the crap. <laughs> <laughs> from, from an outsider looking in, obviously, you know, uh, we all get the image that you were just mentioning. He seems like he's got the big head. And I think it's just he's smart, right? Um, but being the outsider looking in, the the times I've been lucky enough to interact with him, he come off as a very appreciative uh, man of yeah. especially of his fans. So I, I think yeah. it's part of his part of his image, like you you alluded to. <laughs> um, I, I want to be mindful. 
I want to be mindful of your, of your time and I appreciate how much you've been hanging out and obviously the awesome stories. Any final thoughts you want to share with our, our dark horse entrepreneurs out there as they're, you know, kickstarting and restarting their, uh, their business ventures? No, um, other than, you know, be humble, work hard, which is, mm-hmm. which is kind of obvious in the work hard part. Um, never, never, even though you have to be a leader, you still have to be part of the team. That's a biggie if you want to accomplish anything. Um, and don't listen to friends and family when they want to bring you down. Do not. If you believe it in your heart and you want to keep going, you keep going. And you know when it's time to give up. Very few people actually want you to succeed. And that's the truth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Un- unfortunately, I think they, uh, someone said it uh, well. I was listening to a podcast the other day and it was talking about so many people want to tear down all the tall buildings versus building their oh, own tall building. Dear. And it never stops. It will never, ever stop. <laughs> the bigger you get, there's just bigger fish around you. So, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, it's rough. You're now listening to-, to the Dark Horse Entrepreneur Podcast. I, I, I was so, uh, so involved in our, our chat last time that I forgot to ask you about a cool story about uh, the man himself. Oh, no problem. You still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what would you like to know? <laughs> well, I mean, either uh, maybe two things. One, you know, h- how'd you how'd you uh, stumble across the awesome opportunity to work for you know the demon, and maybe some cool story that uh, just kind of makes you smile or just you you think is kind of uh, would be awesome to share. <laughs> in general, the gene makes me smile, and is is just funny in general, um, right. and good. I mean, I didn't mean that in a bad way. Right. No, um, absolutely. We. I think it started working. Uh, it started when we opened the Kiss venue. Okay. And um, as we were actually prior to that, when we were building the Kiss venue, for whatever reason, um, I, I just instantly got along with Gene. I think we have a lot of the same work ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was just a, I don't know, just, just a weird common bond there. And uh, when, God, back in 2014, maybe, I got this random. Uh, email from him that said, Hey, how do you feel about running my base business for me? I was like, um, that was random. (laughs) I was like, what do you mean your base business? So the thing about Gene is Gene is all Gene, all kiss. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't honestly understand that anything else in the world exists besides kiss and Gene. (laughs) So so I, I remember reading it going, um, does he know that we actually have another venue besides this kiss venue? And he does, but he just, you know, he's Gene. Right. Um, so I said to him, well, uh, and I answered the email first before we chatted on the phone. I said, I, I'd be happy to run the back end for you. Like if you need inventory, anything I can do from a computer, I would be happy to do. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I had no idea what he was up to either, you know. Right. And, and then he replied, he said, look, um, our tour is starting in six weeks and I just let my guy go. And he said, how about you get to know the business? You come out for the, you know, for a show and we train the kid to do the on, on tour stuff. Cause I said, the only thing I could never do is tour. I mean, I run a company. We've got Patrick and I have a lot going on. Right. And, and so he's, you know, he's like, well, what, what's, how about we train the kid? And I was like, okay, well, uh, so I, so, so the first thing I did was I, I said, Pat, Gene just asked if I wanted to run his base company for me. Now Patrick is, 
the Kiss fan in, in our relationship. I'm gotcha. the business person. I've always been a Gene Simmons fan. Um, you know, and, and over the years, um, because we're old, um, we've listened to <laughs> all of the Kiss books on tape, all of Gene's books on tape, books when right. we're traveling, and Pat would put it on the car. So by you know default, I would listen to these books too. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning, um, when he was listening to one of Gene's books, I, this is way, this is God it had to be uh, before Monster Mini Golf in 2004. We were traveling somewhere, and I was like. Boy, this Gene guy, you know, I don't know why, but I would get along with this guy. I think he's, I think he's pretty cool. So I always just kind of sat back there. And through all of these books, I'm like, we, we have the same worth ethics. Um, so anyway, so when he said, you know, I said, Pat, look what Gene just asked. And Pat's like, yes, yes, yes. I'm like, but we have a, we have a real life here. We don't have just a kiss life. And our, and our real life is what pays our, you know, that's what allowed us to do this kiss thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because when you open a business, it doesn't instantly start making money. There's a lot of work that went into that. So, uh, so he's like, well, let's, let's do it. Let's do it. You can do the behind the scenes and, and we'll train somebody to do that. Just like he said, I said, all right, that sounds great. So, in 2014, uh, we went on our first show, which was actually up, it might have been uh, Tacoma, Washington, or mm-hmm. somewhere up in Washington. So we did, that was our first experience with the Gene Simmons-based business. So I remember, right, I took my, for whatever reason, I took, um, actually, I took my phone. I didn't, even, I didn't even take my camera back then because I didn't know what I was in for. Mm-hmm. So we did our, our first experience with him, and we went through it, and the, the base signing, and, and then I realized, holy cow, this is a pretty amazing experience. These people get to talk to Gene. And then I got to know what Gene was like with his fans because up until then it was always business. There was no reason, you know, I didn't have that experience. So when I witnessed that first experience, I thought to myself, holy cow, this is so much more than buying a base. Mm -hmm. This is priceless, you know? Absolutely. So, um, and then I, you know, and Gene, but on the flip side, Gene is Gene. There is nobody else on the planet like Gene. So I experienced that whole thing. The customer was a great guy. Um, they were happy. We, we took you know cameras with his phone. Gene was Gene, and, and off he went. And I thought to myself, and we did a couple more shows right after that, and then I started bringing my camera along because I'm like, these pictures are awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, This is just something we want to have forever and ever. And then by like the second or third show, we regrouped. I'm like, this is great but this isn't something you can put in the hands of a kid mm-hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. I, I, from my point, and I'm a, I guess I am a business person, but I, I, when somebody buys something, especially of that kind of price tag, right. My, if I, and if I'm selling it, then that person had better walk away from there saying that was the coolest thing I ever bought. And it was worth every single penny. Mm-hmm. Otherwise I don't want to sell the product. I feel like a jerk. Right. So, um, and then the other side of that is Gene is the reason that Gene is a one of a kind person um, is so many, so many different things that make up that one individual. And what I saw was if Gene is happy with what he's doing, then he's going to be happy with the fan. He's going to feel relaxed. He's going to spend more time with them and he doesn't have to worry about is my business being taken care of the way I yeah, want it to right. um, because he expects like a, you know, 110%. And I can relate to that because I'm the same way. (laughs) So I looked at it and said, this is, I can pull this off for a while with Patrick. Um, And then maybe someday we can train somebody to do this. And just that's how it happened. Nice. (laughs) So, you know, it it became a a, a whole, a team effort. And by the end of that first 
tour that we did. And I think that it just happened and we were just doing the shows where, sorry, I got that bird in the background. And That's we were okay. just doing the shows that we were, you know, we were supposed to do. If there was enough base sales, we would travel to them. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I remember sitting down at, at the end of that run. It was in, um, it was in, I think it was Houston, uh, whatever, either Houston or Fort Worth in August or early September, it was about 9,000 degrees. Gene had come off the stage. It was just, you're hot, you're sweating, you're exhausted. He came off the stage, he had a stage play, he signed it, and he just was still Gene. He comes off that stage looking like, my God, the first thing I want to do is sit down and take a shower and just relax, and he doesn't. He's still full on with the fan. So the next day, we we actually sat down with him in in his hotel room, kind of regrouped. I'm like, He's like, what do you think? Because that was like the first time he got a breath was at the end of it. You know, people think you have all kinds of spare time and he, and he just wants to sit down and hang with you. I mean, these people are busy. Yeah. So I remember saying to him, I had no idea that this is what you do after the show with people or behind the scenes or before the show, anywhere. Like, I didn't know that this was the fan experience. And if anybody knows Gene, you know, he looks at you and he just gives you that, yeah. That's me. Yeah, that's me, right? <laughs> that's I, what I, I did that. <laughs> I, yeah, I did all of this. And I'm like, man, I, I honestly, I was fucking blown away. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and then I said to him, I said, can I ask you why you do this? Like, what is, I mean, you, you have enough money. You don't need to do this. You don't need to spend. And I wasn't being mean. I'm like, what is it that makes you do this? And he said, um, and he stopped for a second. And once in a while, you get like real, like you get honest Gene where he's just, you know, he's not in fan mode. He's not in, you know, Gene Simmons demon mode. Sure. And um, he said, because I love doing it. He said, out of all the things I do, this is one of my favorite things to do. He said, I can't believe that people are looking at me and looking up to me and saying, you did this in my life. You've changed this in my life. I, I, he said, to this day, I could hear that a million times, and I still can't believe that people look up to me. Right. And it was like it was like a humble, sincere moment. And I was like, and he said, and I love doing it, and I always will. And I said, well, that's why you're Gene. You know, yeah. it just was. And from that day on, it just became a thing. Um, we run it like a really tight ship. My only goal is to make Gene happy and make the fan happy and be invisible. Yeah. You know, and I think that a lot of people that have worked either with Gene or probably with any um, A-list kind of star, and you're in that weird role where you have you get to see part of their lives. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people get caught up in how do I get attention for myself? I want his attention. I want to be cool. I want to be this. And it's yeah. not about us at all. It has nothing to do with us. It's all about the fan and, and the person. So yeah. it's a... Uh, yeah, I've learned so much from him. I've learned from the fans. The first time I saw a forty-year-old man cry in front of him, I was I was taking pictures. You know, I'm doing the whole experience, and um, and I looked. I was looking through. Yeah, you know, looking through. I'm looking through my lens. I see everything through my lens. You know, I was right. sitting there looking there, and I looked, and I had to take the camera down and look up in real life. I'm like, holy cow, that guy's actually crying. And now it's yeah, I've seen it so many times. I can't even count anymore, but. It's amazing the impact that whether it's a rock star or a celebrity or whoever, the person that you look up to can have 
on you emotionally and, and how much they really did change their lives. Yeah. No, that's, that's so a, much more to it than just buying an instrument. You're absolutely right. There's uh, you know, as you know, I've been lucky enough to have one of those experiences and it, it's, he's truly giving and it's a, it's a, it's a moving moment. It's, it's, it's he's phenomenal. In the moment. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. He's there with you, you know, you, it's you and him and the bass and that's it. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, I know you and I, we, uh, we did it at the, uh, uh, it was Comic-Con down in Chicago, yeah, yeah, you know, and there were yeah. thousands and thousands of yeah. people around us. But as far as he was concerned, it was just me, my wife, and my two daughters. That's it. Yep. And it was, uh, it, he, go ahead. You hit the nail on the head there too, because we've done it. Like, I mean, cause you never know where you're at and people are like, are we going to be private? I'm like, they're on tour or he's at an event and there's no such thing as private. No matter where you stand, there's no actual private. Right. But as soon as he starts talking, it's like you're in a cone of silence. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's only you. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's definitely a gift that he has, and he deserves all the uh, all the accolades oh. and all the things he's earned across the years. That's for sure. Uh, and I, 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 I definitely wanted to hear hear your side, uh, that insider story, because uh, you well, it, so many people. The only way they know him is through his persona. Uh, and good, mm-hmm. bad, or indifferent—that's the—that's the image he projects. And man, he's made it work uh, across the decades. So more power to him. Yeah, yeah, he's—he's—he's he's a, he's a one-off. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, yep. uh, uh, for anyone listening that wants to learn more about uh, about you and what you do, it's uh, you know, share your website and any other socials that you, if folks want to learn more about franchising and or even franchising a uh, monster golf location. Sure. Uh, MonsterMiniGolf.com will get you right to our main website, and then you can go anywhere from there. I am very easy to get a hold of uh, by email. It's Christina at MonsterMiniGolf.com. And on most social media platforms, I am 123 Christina V. 123 Christina V. And we'll be sure to get those uh, all those links in the show notes so people can just click on it and uh, uh <laughs> Christina, thank you so much for hanging out and telling your story and uh, monster wishes to you. How about that? (laughs) Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Tracy. (laughs) All right. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Christina Vitaliano dropping musical and monstrous bombs on us. Let me share with you the thoughts that I walked away with. And there were so many of them in this particular episode, but I'm going to narrow them down. Thought number one, Christina reminded us of the importance of learning. She said she owed them, and in this case, them being her bosses at Underground Camera, for sending her to all the classes and the conferences to help her build her customer service, her sales, and her business skills. See, how this impacts, this, this, this reminds me of how this impacts her as a person and the person she became. She reminded us of how that impacted that. Then she goes on to mention her teachers, right? The part-time and the full-time jobs she had. Those all make you are, make you who you are today. Who do you have to thank for who you've become, right? Are you still on that path of learning since you are? Since you are the type of person that takes the time to listen to this podcast or a podcast like this, I'm going to assume the answer to that last question is a resounding yes. Well, while she doesn't call it out specifically, you can hear how she learned through a variety of businesses and experiences that she gained through all of them during the years, all of which enabled her to create her current business. Make sure you're leveraging 
all of your experiences into your business, not just what you feel is 100% relevant. Think a bit outside the norm. Integrate your background, your knowledge, and your experience to create something that's uniquely you. That could be your marketing edge. Thought number two, if you're not happy, sell it. If you're not happy, get out of it, right? And move on to something that you will be happy doing. When Christina got to the point where she was no longer happy doing her auction house, she got out. Sounds simple, right? And then she decided she wanted to do something that that fits some rules. And those rules for her were uh, she wanted it to make people happy. She didn't want to have a lot of inventory. She didn't want to have a lot of employees. And she wanted it to cost the customer less than going to the movies, right? I think for the lesson here, it's kind of twofold. One, if you're not happy, get out. That's simple enough. Two, figure out what will make you happy. Lay out those grand rules. Then do your research and find that role or activity or business that fits those ground rules and go after it full bore using all your past experience and knowledge. Remember how she combined her past nightclub experience into her new indoor mini golf business? Eh? Use all those experiences. Create something that's uniquely you, remember? Thought number three. Now how much you, (coughs) excuse me, no matter how much you plan, things do not always go as planned. Not only a lesson from Christina in the opening of her new min- business, uh, the, the mini golf business. I remember she thought it was going to take a couple of months, months to open it, but actually it took like six. In this particular podcast episode, we had some technical difficulties during the interview, but we worked through them. I pulled out the dead space, but didn't pull out the fact that we had difficulties. Why? Because that's life, right? Ka, ka happens. You just have to keep on keeping on, right? And I didn't want to just pull it out and make it all sound all perfect. I wanted to let you know life goes on. We made it through it, and we were still able to deliver. Remember that the next time you stip, stumble, trip, and fall, or can't speak like I just now. <laughs> Thought number four, hospitality and good training is the secret sauce. As I, as I mentioned in the interview, Christina's staff at both of the uh, at both the old location and the new, current location uh, at the Rio, they gave top top notch service not just to me but to my wife and to all of our guests. To me, if you have an okay product and you 10x the service levels, you're five stars in my book. But now imagine if you have a great product. Now back that up with that 10x service and your customers are going to be shouting about you from the rooftops. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is marketing you cannot buy. Thought number five, be humble and work hard. Do that and you will not find that you have a lot of competition. Yeah, actually, I think if I said it right, it would be you'll find that you do not have a lot of competition. Enough said there. What ideas or inspiring tips or thoughts resonated with you? Hmm? Whatever they were, take some time today and put them into action. Go out there, run your race, get your results, and then let me hear about them. Seriously, email me at tracy at darkhorseschooling.com and share the tips and ideas that you came away with, how you put them into action, and what results you gain from them. Using the prize pool that we're building from past guests, if you send that email to me and I read it on the show, you win. Okay, 
Now, our next episode's guest, John Molyneux, he has this incredible niche in his sales training arena by combining his years of martial arts experience with his years of sales experience to become, wait for it, the sales samurai. Yep, the problem-solving assassin. You're going to want to check this one out. Now, I know you want to keep getting all these valuable tips, creative niche ideas, and inspirational stories from this podcast, so please go on down there, hit that subscribe button, and while you're there, give us a five-star rating. Why did write us a quick review? And of course, don't keep all this entrepreneurial G-O-L-D to yourself. Share the podcast with other entrepreneurs and business owners and anyone else you think will get value from it. With that, I'm going to leave you as I always do. Think successfully and take action. Thank you for listening to the Dark Horse Entrepreneur Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Check us out at www.darkhorseschooling.com. All right. My name is Tracy Brinkman.